Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. What, why are you angry if I wear a mask? Because you're wearing a mask out of stupidity and you're further pushing the agenda. And the agenda is the deep state, which wants to control all of us and have us living in fear and thinking that you're contaminated. It is false narrative. And when you wear a mask, which you can certainly do, you are further pushing the agenda that is condemning all of us and keeps us living in a state of terror. She's not alone in those views. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and today, as usual, I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about the cosmic right. We're through the looking glass here, people. So, guys, I think this was uh, another one of Kia's excellent uh, ideas. So why are we talking about this now? Well, uh, I think it was kind of my idea. The, the, the phrase the cosmic right comes from uh, an internet friend of mine from Australia, Dave Eden, because uh, I, was, I was throwing around the idea, this, this concept of acid fascism, but it doesn't capture <laughs> acid fascism to go, to go along with acid communism, of course. Um, but it, but basically, it it refers to a phenomenon that's been sort of been developing over the last couple of years, but has massively, massively accelerated uh, since since the COVID nineteen pandemic emerged. Um, and it is the it's this sort of spread of conspiratorial thinking, and in fact, conspiratorial thought, conspiratorial thinking, tending towards sort of far right, even racist sort of themes the spread of that sort of thinking within sort of new age sort of scenes spirituality communities and uh, and in particular since um since the pandemic has started in wellness communities and it's like so basically that there it's been a complicated theme this there's been there have been ever upsurges of uh of conspiracy theories around 9-11 for instance that uh the assassination of John F. Kennedy is probably like the mother load. That's where it all starts. No, actually, it goes back a long way before that, but like it, it, in contemporary times. Um, but like this is this is something new. This is this is something strange. And in some ways, you know, that there, there, there uh, it's the emergence of like right wing. Well, well, we'll discuss whether they're right wing patterns of thought, but like conspiratorial patterns of thought crossing over into into Trumpism and into conspiracy theory thinking around the sort of like Trump movement, the spread of that sort of thinking into communities which would have been thought of traditionally as aligned to the left. So uh, uh, so it's pretty appropriate to us to, to discuss it. I mean, I think it's worth saying, it's worth stressing from the start. Like, I mean, as Keir's already alluded to, that it's really... I mean, the, the, the history of, like, relationships between, like, indeed sort of cosmic thinking... Magical thing, you know, magic, you know, strands of yoga, you know, alternative 
you know, sort of what we think of as alternative culture, even vegetarianism and like the far right. I mean, it goes back at least to the early 20th century. I mean, there's, there was always a, there, was a, there was an esoteric strand of Nazism and they were into some strands of Hindu philosophy, some of them. And so this stuff does, you know, it often, I mean, and often, and obviously like, you know, Protocols of Elders of Zion, you know, the, the, the forged text claiming to be the sort of minutes of the secret meeting of the Jews and their plan to take over the world. You know, that was kind of, you know, that's probably the most historically significant conspiracy theory. So it's, it's not really new. But then the question, I guess, is like, well, what, okay, what is exactly happening now? You know, and Keir said a bit about this already, like what's happening now that makes it particularly worth talking about. And obviously, the, the, like you say, Keir, the context of COVID is, is, seems to have really accelerated certain things. But even without COVID, there was this really obvious acceleration of a certain kind of conspiracy thinking, certainly in American political culture. So, like, so for the show, you know, as a microdose, I, I did an interview with Eric Davis, and, it, and one of the things we talked about in that was the kind of genesis and the growing importance of the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is this completely insane, this completely insane sort of right-wing uh, fantasy, basically, according to which Donald Trump is actually the... Um, a sort of James Bond-like figure. I mean, sort of better than James Bond, sort of secretly leading a secret campaign of kind of good guys within the sort of security services and bits of the media and what have you. Have you and they're fighting against this evil conspiracy of bad people in the in the deep state who were all who are paedophiles and engaged in various kinds of you know magical practice and whatever. And it's and it, and it all comes from just a series of very of kind of you know of sort of of, of posts on 4chan on this you mm. know this chat site so, so, that, so uh, just, bef- just before go you go on jeremy just because i think when we were chatting about this in the beginning and then and then i, I listened to the, the eric davis uh excellent eric davis interview and then you were you you brought up q, q is it q non yeah q anon q anon right so I had never heard about this and I'm I guess I'd I'd like us at this stage just to like I guess expose to like where does this stuff play out like why is it that I've not heard about it is it because like you've just mentioned I'm not on 4chan like is it a certain section of the internet and it's a certain kind of person um that that is involved in this kind of thing like is the, is this like whose reality is it well I think if you I think it's mainly because you're just you're not in the state and you're probably not like listening to as many American left podcasts right okay as we are. fine fine it's just that like if okay. everyone in the states knows about it I mean everyone right. who like follows news media and kind of follows political discourse knows about QAnon because you can't really know about the whole culture of Trumpism now, without knowing that a big, a big strand, a significant strand of Trump's like active support base is people who believe this fantasy, and it's been sort of extraordinary to watch it unfurl over the past so four to five years. And yet, you know, it's kind of gone from being the situation like five years ago with the alt right and people, you know, was this kind of you know scary but slight but very niche part of the of sort of internet culture and meme culture to this situation where you seriously have, you know, I mean, the percentages of people in America who say they believe, like, the QAnon story, I can't remember what the percentages are now, but you're not talking about, like, tens, but you're talking about, you know, there's, like, probably there's something like between 5 and 20% of people who actually believe it. And this is, like, this is flat-earth levels of insanity. I mean, this is, like, and, it's, and, it, is, and it has a direct implication on people's... Um, 
you know, political behaviour. Yeah, and that's that's and that's the key thing, isn't it? It's like yeah. how does it how does this play out in terms of like both policy, activism, etc. Just to sort of like, where has this gone? Like, who believes in this thing? Like, there is a story of like leaking out from internet chat rooms into real into real world in a couple of different ways. As in, like, someone was selected to be. Um, I think it's like um, the House of Representatives. So they're going to be in in uh, in Congress, a Republican candidate who is openly references Q and like is an open believer in the QAnon. Uh, yeah, and Q, Q is the name of the anonymous poster on 4chan who posts these like enigmatic phrases, which it's their followers interpret like some kind of oracle, but which all kind of gesture towards an understanding of. And they and they so they seem to offer they they claim to offer their readers a kind of an understanding of the true events going on underneath the surface. So, you know, when Trump seems to do something stupid in a speech, he's actually giving a secret signal to some of his agents, you know, as part of their campaign against the evil, you know, paedophile lizard people. And it's probably important to say that it's it it, it relates to paedophile rings in. In elite society, the Clinton, the, the organised crime family of the Clintons, as they, as it said in QAnon law and, and Obama, etc. Right. That, so there's sort of high level paedophiles, um, you know, and the, um, Trump is part of a uh, of a secret organisation which is going to reclaim democracy and is going to be a great awakening. And um, you know, hundreds of years of distortion of democracy will uh, be resolved. That's the sort of like it's something like that. But there isn't a QAnon canon apart from, like, the Q, these little gnomic uh, announcements that comes from whoever Q is. Like, basically, it's one of those... It's a do-it-yourself conspiracy theory. You know, it's a participative... It's like participative world-building, basically. Right, okay. It's all about, like, there's a little clues dropped and then you have to join in the discussion to try to work out what it means, basically. Uh, which, which I think is probably, like, something... It's probably something, rel- I don't know if it's new or not, but it really, really does fit with the way in which people like to use the internet. Do you know what I mean? It's something about the training that the internet's given us mm. that what we, want, what we want to do is like not be given these truths, but we want to go and pick out and try and find our, you know, work our own way, thread our own way through the conspiracy. What you've just described seems like, you know... As we were saying when we were chatting about doing this show, quite mapping quite similarly onto the kind of anti-vaxxing position of like, I know I've discovered something that the doctors don't know or I know something about COVID which other people don't know. So is it is it part of the technology or the architecture of, of part of this? Is the kind of the throwing the clues which allows people to feel a level of agency in kind of discovering the truth? Is that what makes it more effective than, you know, it being viewed as out there for everyone to see? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's argue, you can argue that it's symptomatic of the this, this sort of general, you know, what, what Lyotard called in the, in the 70s called the postmodern condition, you know, the situation in which there's a kind of general declining faith in authority, whether it's scientific authority or religious authority or kind of media authority, and there's a growing tendency of people to just sort of, to basically just believe things on the basis that they seem to work for them, that they, that they, that they, that they actually produce some effect or some affect or that they just, you know, they, they give them a kind of, 
you know, what Frederick Jameson calls a cognitive map, you know, to, to make sense of the world in a way that, you know, produces results for them, even if it doesn't actually correspond to any objective reality. And and this is, in some ways, this is, just, yeah, this clearly is a sort of acceleration of that tendency. And it and it's sort of, you know, it's, I mean, that postmodern condition is always a sort of two-edged thing. It's partly, you know, it has, partly it comes from a genuine democratic rejection of kind of traditional forms of authority, but it, it but what it doesn't use, the, the, the reason it produces a sort of social crisis is it doesn't replace them with like properly democratic or deliberative alternatives. It doesn't, it doesn't produce, it doesn't replace them with a situation in which people actually have a, a democratic opportunity to both learn about the world in, in, in a meaningful way and then deliberate with others to make decisions about the kind of world they want. It just throws you into the kind of infinite marketplace in which, you know, ideas and knowledge just become in, sort of exchangeable for um, you know, and just become sort of commodified. But I think, I mean, that all is that is a really tempting analysis of like the, of the conspiracy thing. But you know, and I, you know, I've been sort of teaching still, you know, that stuff and kind of Leotard and for years and de- you know, decades now almost. But it's really tempting. But I think it is important also to to acknowledge. Well, as we've already alluded to, like there are mass, there are obvious like historical precedents for this stuff. And like you know, we mentioned the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, but then. In some senses, like the ultimate one is, you know, I mean, one of the ultimate ones is the long history of of kind of paranoia about Freemasons and Freemasonry, and you know, there's even like a, you know, there's an it's such a big political issue in 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 the United States, like shortly after the independence, that so there's there's a whole anti Freemasons party, and and um, so there's obviously other reasons for all this stuff, which are kind of much, I think, sort of deeper than the deeper than just. Um, anything going on in the past 30 years. Um, Mark Stewart was in this post-punk band, The Pop Group, and after he left, he had this quite a long career. In fact, I saw him a couple of years ago. He had a, yeah, it's still ongoing. Yeah, it's still ongoing. Um, and produced a whole series in the sort of, like, early to mid-80s. He produced a whole, uh, well, a couple of, of really, really interesting albums as Mark Stewart and The Mafia. First one was learning to cope with cowardice, and then the second one was called uh, as the as the veneer of democracy starts to fade. So one of the songs on that um, coping with cowardice is called uh, "None Dare Call It Conspiracy," and it's it's part of this sort of it's part of this sort of um, this sort of uh, the way that it's sort of like quite like conspiracies, not taking conspiracy theories not taken too seriously. Uh, were part of like a certain certain subculture, the sort of post-punk sort of subculture at that time. So you'd have magazines like Vague, which started off as a sort of uh, post-punk fanzine and turned into like these sort of like situationist sort of screeds, etc. But that went through a real conspiracy theory moment. We could sort of say that there, there, there are probably ideal conditions in which conspiracy theories grow. More than just, you know, what, you know the, the, the sort of like breakdown of authority over the, over the last sort of 40, 50 years. God, it's, yeah, it's probably is 40, 50 years now. <laughs> like they, they probably, this sort of breakdown authority probably probably takes place when you have what we do have now, which is like this huge, 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 and, and in, insane levels of, of inequality, material inequality, and huge concentrations of wealth, uh, and which is what we have now. So you do have elites, which are incredibly powerful, right? Um, and then it probably also, also takes off 
when you have uh, unexpected events, right? So, so, so COVID-19 has this very specific upsurge at the moment, very specific sort of like uh, conspiracy theories, really, really accelerating fast. And it's probably because COVID-19 is just such an unusual event. And so like JFK is one of these uh, uh, conspiracy events, you know, and people, when people look back at that, they, they sort of think, um, well, you know, part of what it was, was this, 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 this sort of feeling of, disruption in your in your world view that like that like that the president could be shot by one person and, and history could change in such a contingent event do you know what i mean and then you have a huge huge upsurge around 9-11 so 9-11 truthers like a really big upsurge of conspiracy theories and it was because you know it, it, you know it just seemed such, you know such a difficult event to get your head around particularly if you were american and you know the not been uh, uh, foreign attacks on American soil for so long. I think COVID is a bit like that. It is just such an unusual situation. It's such an interruption in what we thought that the future would be like that it's very hard to to just incorporate into, you know, you have to adjust your worldview and is to that... take COVID into account in some way. And is But is that because the world has been relatively stable? I mean, instinctively, that feels like the wrong... The, the, the untruth, or is it because neoliberalism has sold this story to people, a lot of people in the West who, you know, have not had to experience, you know, war in the explicit sense, but of course, you know, have been under like economic war for, you know, decades, where you, where you tell yourself this story, you know, that same, you know, uh, cap- that capitalist realism thing where you think, well, this is what the world looks like. And then an external event like, you know, 9-11 or COVID or whatever comes. And because, because of how like materially real it is, it shakes that up. Is that what we're kind of saying? Or, or is it that is it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it like there's, there's the reality shifting but there's also the narrative that was told before that, for that to be that stark. Well, yeah, I think that... No, go on, Kate. Well, no, no, I mean, that, that just, like, leads us to question, like, what... COVID is this huge, really unusual event. But, Jesus, it's come a, 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 at the end of... Or in the middle of a whole series of events which just completely defied the common-sense understanding of how the world works from 2008, then, you know, Trump, Brexit, etc. Uh, you know, it's part of this general... Uh, breakdown of of a period of hegemony. We don't know if it's a, it's the final breakdown of it, but basically a, a, a period of like what seemed like relative stability in the nineteen nineties, perhaps even the early two thousands, goes into this period of really extended. So far, a decade long period of like just crises after crises, unexpected event after unexpected event. You know that will produce that sort of. Uh, millenarian thinking, basically, that we're entering the end times, that, that you know, we're, 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 you know, the whole society is going to break down. And then, you know, coming the other way is this other sort of millenarian end times type event, which is climate change. Uh, and so some of what we, we might want to think about perhaps a little bit later is how much of this conspiracy theory, and there's loads we have to go through, how much of these conspiracy theories is actually a sort of like sublimated recognition that this event is coming down the line but your worldview is not going to allow you to see that event in its full force because it has an an unpleasant um consequences for for your life and in fact it's probably better and and more reassuring to think that there is somebody in control a small group of people in control and therefore another small group of people 
the Q, the QAnon, the, the Trumpists could could solve that problem. Uh, where in fact, you know, actually the real, if you look at it with stark reality, it's actually much, much more difficult to solve if there is no conspiracy of people uh, controlling the world. I mean, there's two different types of explanation, partly, which both, you know, beyond conspiracy theory just being nonsense, like, you know, there's put, put around to, you know, just do people or waste their time and there's one is that sort of sort of psychoanalytic explanation that it's a displacement it's a sublimation meaning it's you know the sort of emotional energy you should be investing in thinking about climate change you're investing in thinking about this other thing because climate change is too big to look at or whatever but then there's also a sort of Gramscian explanation you know, Gramsci always says that in in common sense in everybody's kind of distorted you know ideological everyday understanding of reality there's there's always elements of good sense you know there's elements of just the truth I mean you know, and even in even in QAnon, I mean, I would say, you know, there's an element of there's big elements of good sense. I mean, I actually, I think, you know, the idea of the Clintons as the great villains. I mean, I think, I do think, you know, if if you if humanity survives the next century, the Clinton period will be it is Clinton who will be looked back on as this like Caligula like villain. You know, who just sat there, who had all the science in front of him, who knew perfectly well what was going on in terms of climate change, and instead of doing anything about it, destroyed the global kind of regulatory regime that could have actually tackled it on purpose. You know, that's what, you know, they set up the World Trade Organization and imposed this free market deregulated agenda and everything, you know, destroying all, all the governmental apparatus that, that had been in place since the war that could have actually dealt with climate change. This, is, this is Bill Clinton for our younger, yeah. younger listeners. Well, it's Bill Clinton, but also Hillary Clinton absolutely okay. is an agent, is part Fine. of the same elite, the same sort of dynasty. You know, so... You know, it's not. They're not wrong that those guys are the villains, and in a way, which even like Trump isn't really. They're not. They're not wrong about that. And um, you know, they're not wrong about their kind of parasitic relationship to, to the world. And it's also, you know, with Kennedy, like it clearly is. It, everybody, it's, it's just a matter of it's just. It's, there's no. He's, there's virtually no historian of, of the matter now. He doesn't assume there was some kind of, you know, conspiracy of security services. And you know, even you know that was all. You know, it was Eisenhower who, when he left office at the end of the 50s, who told everybody, look, you've got to watch out for this growing military-industrial complex because he knew what was going on with the development of the, the growing kind of power and total unaccountability of the CIA and their, their sort of corporate allies. So so there is obviously... There's a, there's a powerful sort of element of truth in it. And, uh, you know, and um, in, all these cons- in all these so-called conspiracy theories, and, and to some extent... The very labelling of, you know, I mean, I mean, one of the issues to get to is like what we mean by conspiracy theory. What was the definition of conspiracy theory? Because, of course, sort of the liber- liberalism, kind of li- common sense liberalism accuses of conspiracy theory anyone who has a, who has a systematic account of, of power relations who, or who argues that there are sort of, you know, there are, there are political and historical forces at work other than the immediate intentions of, of individuals and the accidental aggregation of their effects. So they call us, I mean, they call Marxists conspiracy theorists. They, they say, you know, you get this in sort of media studies all the time, that basically liberals will just use the term conspiracy theory to, to, to refer to, like, you know, grand, just like British cultural studies that accuse of being a conspiracy theory because it has because it says that, like, the ruling class use their media power to, to serve their own interests. So the question of well, what, what the, then is a conspiracy theory is a really interesting question. And, and um, I don't know, what do we think? So, because I, I think we want to say... 
there are conspiracy theories that even though they may contain elements of truth, they are a distinctive type of discourse. And even though they may contain elements of truth, they then wrap those elements of truth up in a false story, which has politically debilitating yeah. effects. Yes. So I think that's the key ACFM question for us. So we should go on to define that and talk about the right or left bit. But I think the key question for us, one of the key questions is is, is exactly that, is that what what is the effect of this kind of thinking? And when does this kind of thinking arise and what does it give what does it bear for the future and 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 who does it you know is is a certain kind of person it attracts and and what's the effect um on the political landscape i think that's the one of the key things well the effect it ne- it i think it, it never benefits the left does it i mean in i mean unless i mean from our perspective from a left perspective it's a historical constant that conspiracy theory is basically always an alternative to a properly leftist understanding of distributions of power and, and, and the way in which they're exercised. But but isn't that because we would think that our view, like we we would, well, we do, we know, let's say we know because, you know, we believe in our truth, is that, you know, if you're talking about the, the relationship between the elites and the media, like to us, that's a fact. The right would, like you just mentioned before, would accuse us of that being a conspiracy theory when we're, we, we would be like, nah, mate, it's a power analysis. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. So we have so so, but we need to define what we like. I you know, example, flesh out some of the examples we talked about on the top of the show about what like what in contemporary life, um, like QAnon and you know, talk about COVID and you know, humans are the virus and all the rest of it because those are things that we think are conspiracies. But there's other people outside our political realm which would call things that we know to be true as conspiracies. So that's that's the thing, right? So if you're saying there are no cons- like conspiracy theories never benefit the left, it's like, well, I can see how there could be an argument made from from the right about that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean you're raising the question, aren't you? Of like, what I mean, what you know, to what extent do we do we assume a position of sort of you know what philosophers would call an epistemological privilege? Like we know the truth about the world, the others don't, and. You know, it's always a problem. It's an interesting, again, in the interview I did with Eric Davis um, for the show, one of the, this is an, an issue that kind of, it's, we don't touch on it that much explicitly. It kind of came up tangentially a few times because Eric is kind of, I think Eric is sort of, I mean, probably more than me, is sort of a postmodernist in that he's sort of very committed to a notion of the sort of provisionality of truth. Um, even though he always says he's like, he's not a skeptic, like he's not, he, he's someone who does believe in science, for example. And, well, actually, I suppose, and I'm saying that I'm trying. It's not really accurate to characterise him as, as having a different position from me than that. Because I would say, I would say there is a sort of, you know, there is a sort of, I would say, a sort of left perspective which comes out of, which really comes out of disillusion with the the dream of scientific Marxism in in the in the set in the 20th century the dream that marxism could establish itself as this absolute science of history that would have would be sort of objectively verifiable and would tell you an, an absolute truth about the world and the fact that that became that notion of marxism became basically an alibi part of the alibi for stalinism you know generated it, and it became associated with the authoritarianism of like the communist party in places like france really you know was one of the things that led to the sort of wave of postmodernist and post-structuralist thinking which sort of questioned all those ideas but but I would say if, if you take on board even people like Leotard actually who, t- who tend to be really denigrated say by people like Jameson if you take it on board sort of 
you know, in good faith. And it, it, it's never saying, it's never saying we absolutely don't believe in truth. It's saying that as scientific thinkers, we recognise that any truth is always provisional. It's always a hypothesis based on the best available evidence that we have at a given moment. And so, if you believe, and so, you know, you, but also based on the best available evidence, you have to make the most, you know, the best judgment you can. And then you have to, you know, remain committed to the notion that that is the truth of the situation. So from that point of view, yeah, we do, we do believe, you know, what part of what it means to be on the left is you basically, you do believe that if you, if you do certain things, it will probably have certain outcomes. For example, if you deregulate global, you know, financial markets and impose free trade on every country in the world, you will probably not cut carbon emissions to the extent the scientists in 1994 are already telling you you need to do that is probably true and it turns out that we were that we're right about that but you know in relation to things like QAnon you know it's probably you know we, we would want to say it's true well it, it's true that the, the Clintons are part of a global and international neoliberal political class that serves their interests and those of their allies in Silicon Valley and Wall Street and basically doesn't really serve anyone else's interest apart from by accident um, but we would want to say, like, it's not true that you know that they're they're in ally they're they're al- they're allied to vampire lizard people. Although whether it makes any difference, I are, don't they know. Vampire <laughs> are they vampire lizards? Are they vampire lizards? I feel I'm elaborating. <laughs> right, <laughs> not much. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought the image in my head, kind of, yeah, I was like, wow, va- vampires. That's, that's. I mean, even when I say the statement Hillary Clinton is not in line with in league with vampire lizard people, I don't really believe it. I don't really believe the statement that she isn't. I think we have to come. We have to come back a little bit later about like what do we do about this? Like what can the left? Well, what can the left? How how can the left relate to this? But also, what can the left perhaps learn from this? I think there is something the left can learn from something like QAnon. Um, uh, and I think we also have to return back to what Jeremy was talking about, which in some ways is is a sort of defence of the project of reason, right? And I'd probably say like. What, what distinguishes the left is that, like, we want to defend, like, a collective project of freedom, of, of reason, sorry, of reason. And freedom. Uh, and both freedom, sound, yeah, 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 yeah. Really They're good. probably very, very <laughs> related. Um, and so, like, you know, democracy and actually science, right, those are both collective projects of reason, you know, to, uh, uh, where, you, where you're trying to come to a, a shared common view of the world in order to be able to act on the world, and you're trying to do it through through deliberative debate. I mean... In public, importantly. Yeah, in, in like, public, in yeah. public, which is one of the key things, I think, one of you brought up when we were chatting about this, is that, you know, science is done in public. Like, yeah. reason, it, it, it has to be public. And that, I guess, is, is one of the key differences between, like, the consp- with, the, with the whole conspiratorial mindset is, you know, that things are behind closed doors and in secret and all of that and, you know, things that you don't know and it's all dark and dingy and it, that's, that's the opposite. But I'd also, I'd also say this, though, right, just that the other thing about that is, like, basically, I think science does get distorted, right? That the, the actual practice of science gets distorted by funding money power dynamics etc mm-hmm. i think democracy as we practice it now is a, a very very impoverished and, it, and in fact it would probably take you know it's a real real big big project to actually bring about the conditions where real participative democracy could actually take place right you know that's a sort of it's like an iterative project we have to build the conditions for the the, the expansion of democracy so it's not a case of this post-truth sort of stuff which is if we could just go back 
to 2015 before Trump, we would be back in the land of liberal reason, etc. No, that's, you know, it wasn't working then. We have, we have to go somewhere else. You have to build collect the instruments of collective reason. They're not just, they weren't already in existence. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I, I think there's a tendency even among, you know, some of our, our own sort of friends uh, on the sort of, you know, independent intellectual left in Britain to over to be wrong basically be wrong about when the crisis of democracy occurred it didn't occur when people invented twitter no it occurred with the <laughs> it occurred with the de, the uh, the uh, deliberate assault on democracy by the right in order to prevent the resurgence of the left in the 70s it's when it really yeah, if it occurred any time i'm an alligator i'm a mama papa coming for you so Ziggy Stardust uh, is a character created by David Bowie, um, but it's, a, it's an interesting one where, where it's, it's a deliberate, it's a character which plays on a lot of sort of cultic and paranoid sort of fantasies. So Ziggy Stardust is is this character who's come to, is an alien who's come to Earth to try and save the Earth from ecological collapse. Um, and he ends up getting killed by, you know, um, killed in the last album. Uh, uh, well, that's in The Man Who Fell to Earth, isn't it? That's the movie. Well, yeah, that, well, yes. Isn't it? Yeah, but that's also what the Ziggy Stardust mythos is. Right. Yeah, and yeah. The, the Man Who Fell to Earth is sort of a star, uh, the story that sort of riffs, riffs off that. So there's an album in 1972 called the, the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars. And so... So David Bowie puts this character together through a, a, a range of influences, but one of them was he met this 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 sort of like nineteen fifties singer called Vince, Vince Taylor, who'd had a, a breakdown. He basically was probably a paranoid schizophrenic, and really did actually think he was an alien god person sent to Earth to save it, basically. And those are the sorts of like they're the sorts of of sort of origin stories that that basically a lot of cults and like you know Scientology etc sort of form around so it was sort of playing with that with that sort of uh idea but it's also really interesting as a, as a sort of world building experiment the the whole Ziggy Stardust thing and people really really loved it obviously uh I once um I once invented the origin myth for a left accelerationist version of Ziggy Stardust called Zizek Stardust. <laughs> it was going to be called Zizek Stardust and the, and the Communists from Mars. And it was a riff off this... It was a riff, I wrote the origin story. We did a sort of art project, me and a couple of friends in the Free Association did, a, Why did an did art project. Why did I know project. about this? This sounds great. Well, it was a few years ago. We basically invented this origin myth, which was an interview with Zizek Stardust, uh, which goes on about, like, um, there's, there was this, there's this, this interchange between... Ernesto Laclau and, and Zizek, the Marxist Lacanian theorist, where they're having this dispute. And at one point, Laclau says, for revolution to happen in the Zizek's world, you'd have to have you'd have to have communists from Mars, basically. I thought, oh yeah, Zizek Stardust and the communists from Mars. So anyway, we did this we did this art exhibition at Bradford University where we invented um uh, we invented a a left accelerationist oi band from the early 80s called Red Plenty. Um, and we we created all the paraphernalia, so like an album a, a, an album cover, and like the badge, and like a, a couple of reviews that they'd had in sounds, and we were trying to claim that um, Red Plenty were the inspiration for Zizek Stardust. 
The punchline is I forced I forced my daughter to play a couple of gigs as Zizek Stardust. Oh my god! Zizek <laughs> oh Stardust playing Red Plenty songs. <laughs> that, was... that is intense. <laughs> We could talk a little bit about like the specific COVID or the the other sort of conspiracy theories that have been exploding during this particular, well, this year, we should just put yes. it like that. Like, so one of them is the, the conspiracies around whether COVID actually exists, whether it's man-made, whether wearing masks makes it worse. I did all of these sort of conspiracies that, which put into question... 5G. Yeah, the 5G conspiracy. 5G is the big one. Yeah, the 5G conspiracy... One of the things that made it really go go go, go the, the COVID conspiracies go viral was this viral video called Plandemic, which is an interview with a sort of disgraced scientific researcher called Judy Mikovits, which, which sort of like, you know, basically um, puts all vaccinations under doubt, you know, says vaccinations don't work. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it leads to sort of like conspiracy theories like Bill Gates is using... The, the the vaccinations we'll have to have because of COVID to inject microchips into our skin so they can track us all the time. Which obviously leads you to the question of, well, why would they bother? You've, we're all carrying a phone round. I mean, you know, what, what's the, what would they gain from that? Nothing, basically. Um, but that, that's Sounds sort of... like a really bad trip. <laughs> yeah, Sounds no, like is, somebody had... I mean, I mean, it's not... Comp- I mean, the problem is, right, it's not... It's, there are so many elements of truth... In, yeah. in that, like, you know, that fi- you know, 5G, there's, lot, there's lots of reasons to critique 5G and the reasons why people are, you know, what, 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 what's the interest and the power behind, uh, between 5G and bringing 5G to Britain and how it relates to, to surveillance, etc. Like that, I think that's the problem with these things, you know. Is well, that when, when did we have a public debate and decision about introducing 5G? Obviously, we don't. We don't make public decisions about that. Those are sort of... You know, I actually don't know if the government actually regulated it or not, but it's private corporations bringing this in. Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, yeah, and so basically, you know, yeah, you, they, uh, of course, you know, basically what what you what you see is like, you know, an imposition of something or whatever. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's semi different to the to the sort of like so, so the other part of the anti COVID or the COVID conspiracies is you know, this, how it it maps onto anti-mask activism and the sort of polarisation, particularly in the UK, but in the UK, in the, particularly in the US, but in the UK as well, around whether whether wearing masks is an infringement of freedom, which a right has really, really taken up. I think that's a really interesting thing. But then it also, like, one of the, one of the big things that's happened is that um, this pandemic video has caused a load of, like, wellness influences to go full conspiratorial basically um uh, and that's that sort of happened really quite recently so and and that's a really interesting one because it brings up one of the things that they're pointing to around like anti-vax vaccinations wearing a mask etc is this idea of bodily autonomy right that we should be con- control of our own bodies i just think it's a really interesting thing because that's is. a sort of it argument is. that i would be sort of sympathetic to in some sort of ways do you know what i mean um I think I think basically what what that what that throws up is a crisis in an individualized form of freedom 
So vaccinations and lockdown in particular, you know, they show the limits of any form of freedom which purely begins from individual autonomy because what you do affects everyone else. Do you know what I mean? So if you if you don't have a vaccination, well, you know, or if you don't wear a mask, you know, you're not just affecting your own health. You are potentially killing somebody else. So you have to then think of freedom on a collective level. And yeah, and is that is is that because of the poverty of co- collective thought that yeah. in in the kind of in individual people's minds because of the how individuated our experience of the world yeah, I would is. Yeah, say, well, I'd say it's yeah, it is that, and it's coming from. I mean, there's, there's a number of different layers on which that's being compounded. I mean, one thing to say about all this is just that, you know, I think liberalism tends to generate, because liberalism believes the world is just made by individuals and it, and it is suspicious of any form of collective action. It thinks it will always tend towards Stalinism or fascism and, you know, and it's always suspicious of it and it has no understanding of structured power relations. Therefore, you know, you see, you know, in the 18th century, you see that, you know, members of the bourgeois, the you know, radical bourgeoisie are going to some clubs and, you know, they use you know, things like Freemasons' lodges are basically just where they're meeting and talking about politics. And that becomes a sinister conspiracy. It's, it's your way of thinking about it because you can't really imagine people just acting collectively as anything other than sinister. You know, conspiracy just means, like, to breathe together. That's the, the Latin origin. It just means to, like, be in the same room together, basically. That's really um, interesting in a, in a yeah, COVID environment. Yeah, no, it is. That's true. That's a really good point. And then, so there's that. And then people, but then people's, li- as we've talked about many times on the show, you know, people's actual, people's actual lived experience of kind of neoliberal culture is that, you know, the only form of meaningful agency and autonomy you're usually offered is just as an individual consumer. And I think when people, when people just kind of extend that, it's very natural to extend that to experience of your own body and then to find you know and then to find experience any imposition on, on your body and your sort of bodily state you know whether it's by medical authorities or public authorities as, as, as being a kind of intolerable imposition but this is not that far away from us as in i guess are we saying like we've all come across people who we thought kind of had okay views who have started to take on these kind of like cosmic right uh beliefs how close is it to us well, it's a good, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Because I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this is because of this obvious phenomenon that section that some of the things we were interested in on the show, like psychedelic culture, have been, you know, are actually, you know, have are more have more relate closer relationships than I would have expected, like even in like three years ago, with I would say the sort of political right, and you know along that continuum that Keir was sketching out that includes, you know, wellness influences going full 5G conspiracy theory and, you know, sort of in, in and, and people who you might have thought would would be sane, like believing in QAnon. I mean, in that sort of same zone is the world of people who are sort of, they're into mushrooms and DMT, but they're big fans of Jordan Peterson. And, you know, they get sort of pulled into the alt-right. And I guess... I mean, I mentioned on the show last time, actually, I said, you know, I meant, I said, you know, some of my closest friendships with people who, you know, I sort of did psychedelic drugs with, but that was, you know, that was like 25 years ago, to be honest. And like, I wasn't really, I, before we, the sort of acid Corbynism thing started, I didn't have much exposure to like what was going on in, in sort of psychedelic culture after the early 90s. I, I sort of tried to keep an eye on it occasionally the same way I sort of try and keep an eye on what's happening in you know like fantasy role-playing games which I was into when I was 12 because I just I'm interested in knowing what's going on in these cultural zones I was once 
participating in. But there's this huge scene, there's this huge culture of people who are into, they're mostly into mushrooms, but I mean, loads of them are into ayahuasca. I mean, probably actually being into things like a classic, you know, the sort of most classical psychedelic LSD is probably pretty marginal now within that scene. But like most of them are not sort of lefties. They're not, most of the people, as far as I could work out in this scene, are sort of liberal Tories, actually. They're sort of individualist, quite privileged. They're sort of concerned about the environment, but from a very, really sort of conservation perspective. They've got no, there's no, they're not interested in any sort of power analysis of, of what's causing climate change and how they might really be sort of complicit with it, except insofar as it offers them a route into a very enjoyable lifestyle, kind of like driving a Tesla, and, you know, stuff like that. So it's not, I mean, there were lots of people not like that in that scene, but it, but I was really sort of surprised because I had always assumed, like, historically that, you know, because really my set, my kind of cultural coordinates for thinking about this stuff come from the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, that, you know, that there was a, a necessary kind of, there was a necessary sort of overlap between being on, being involved in psychedelic culture or whatever and being on the left. But of course, there's a... There's a lot of, there's two things to say about that. I mean, one is there's been some really good historical research recently published around, you know, kind of exposing that idea and, and exposing the extent to which, there were, you know, there were people with far-right sympathies, like in the 50s, who were interested in LSD. And we'll put, you know, some put some references in the show notes, I guess. And, and But also... You know, there was always, you know, there's this kind of, there's this growing, developing culture over the past kind of 20, 30 years, which I suppose most people know about now, whereby the kind of hyper-capitalists of Silicon Valley, you know, partly just because it was part of their culture in California, were really into psychedelics. And and that has now, that is one of the engines which has driven these moves towards legalisation, the leads towards medicalisation of, of psychedelics. And what's happening now in the States is there's a huge, you know, there's a huge move by big companies to try, like companies like this uh, this company called Compass Pathways to finance, to patent, commodify, privatise and financialize what they see as this huge emerging growth market of legal or quasi-legal psychedelics and, and psychedelic therapies. So... I mean, if people are interested in that, you should look. You should look at this. There's a website called Symposia, P S Y M P O S I A, which is produced by a, a group of writers, including this guy David Nichols. And but they're this very kind of marginal voice in the American sort of psychedelic scene, which is basically protect, arguing a for an ethic of what they call open science, like precisely the idea of science as a public good, as a democratic you know, as a democratic resource and not simply as a source of profit and are protesting against this huge, this kind of juggernaut of financial financialization, which is coming down the tracks to kind of, you know, absorb, amplify and completely sort of capitalise on, you know, psychedelics and psychedelic culture. And that is really a sort of interesting example of what we might think of as being the sort of thing that gets reflected as in a distorted way in conspiracy theory. Because we've talked a bit about, which probably talk a bit more about about kind of anti-vaccination discourse and it's you know which we have kind of characterized i think as a sort of conspiracy theory but anti-vaccination discourse is also responding to a very clearly very true situation which is that indeed 
big pharma, the big pharmaceutical companies, although they they may they claim to be acting somehow in the public interest, and that they claim that they they can only act in the public interest to the extent that they're allowed to charge huge amounts for their products, are clearly not. They are clearly they are a sinister conspiracy to capture science and to use it, you know, to profit tiny elite to, at the expense of vulnerable people all over the planet. So. That is, um, there will be lots of people listening to this who probably are themselves, you know, vaccination sceptics. And I, I think we're all not, you know, we all, I think the, the evidence that it's a vaccination is a good public policy is, yeah, we're not. is overwhelming. But and I, my sense is, and I've I, got for good... one, welcome Bill Gates' overlord <laughs> injecting you with microchip. <laughs> I've been wanting to be microchipped from day one. Yeah. <laughs> it's my so, fantasy. Yeah. Get it's it over my, and done. My it. body, my microchip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, but, you know, but it's exactly that. It's exactly the people I know who are most committed to it. They're good people. They're mostly very you know, good left wing people. They're not even sort of liberals, but they're people who I think, you know, to me, it is the. It gives them a sense of agency. It gives them a sense of a capacity to control what's happening to them and their children, which isn't, which I think is completely illusory. But is you know, and that and that, and that is, you know, and it's completely that. It's the fact. It's a symptom of the fact that, you know, advanced neoliberal post democracy sort of takes away our sense of sort of agency. And I think actually, I'm thinking something now in terms of whether all the question, the historical question, is all this conspiracy stuff getting worse? Is given that we've identified that it's always been there. But one of the things that's specific about our historical moment, it's not, it's that, yeah, there's always been elite power. There's always been a sense that no one knew what the hell was going on and that no one, or that no one was really in charge. There's always been all that. But one of the things that's specific about our historical moment is that we have the memory of this brief period of a few decades, sort of from the 30s to the 70s, when it seemed like, well, you sort of had democratic institutions that basically worked. And you sort of had public science that can actually do stuff. Like, you, 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 during that period, I mean, at the beginning of that period, the 30s, like, you know, antibiotics are a new thing. Like, during that period, you get science, you get the, 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 the medical revolution, the greatest medical revolution, Revolution history. You get people going to the moon. You get the National Health Service. You know, you you get this sense that public there is a public capacity to get shit done, and that includes science. And like, that life the, will get better. And yeah, this exactly. feeling that of progress with a capital P, right? Exactly. And 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 now, and the difference about our the reason our historical moment is different from all those other moments when everything was shit and and just the rich just enriched themselves and told people ridiculous fairy stories to justify it is we can sort of remember we can see the residues all around us of that moment. And I think partly that in a lot of people that probably really does intensify the sense of loss and the sense to to look for different explanations and the sense and also not just the desire to. I mean, there's there's a greater than ever degree of effort being exercised by those in power, by those elites, using these fantastic new tools like Twitter and Facebook and everything, you know, to to tell people that all this bullshit, to spread all this bullshit. Because it's much because, you know, for 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 two thousand for three thousand years of human civilization, you could say to people, Oh, well you could do democracy, but you know, who what, what you know, what would that even look like? You know, now we've we've had a few we had a few decades when we actually had it, something like it, sort of. And now you've got to work much 
harder to tell people, no, no, you can't have that anymore now. And there's also the angle, I think, I'm thinking uh, thinking aloud here, live on the show, um, about the, how where the state fits into this, because it feels like one of the anti-vax kind of sentiments as well is this, this, this disbelief that the apparatus of the state could possibly be, do, you know, the NHS, you know, these institutions could be doing something that, that is right. Whereas I think in the kind of post-World War II consensus and what came out of it, at least in, you know, Britain, a lot of the Western world, this idea that we can have these institutions and these infrastructures and we pay tax and we get all of these things back. You know, we get investment in science, you know, we get free school meals, we got all these things. But but it feels like if, if you don't have a belief of the, in that anymore, like it makes sense not to believe in it anymore because a lot of it is disintegrating. So therefore this idea that, you know, it's only in going back to the conspiracy theory things, it's only individuals, you know, like it's not the state it doesn't it doesn't really do anything for us it's like these are the bad guys and this is what's happening and these are the linkages you know it's a map like you know stars in the sky and you link them this way and the way for me to avoid that is to opt out and then going back to what we were saying earlier about you know the body autonomy or like family autonomy and you go down to these these units which actually to me is a sign of like despair um over like the concept of society and what society can be and what community in the larger sense can be. You know, it's that narrative fits that despair, but it's not told in a tonality of despair. It's actually a kind of like a one-upmanship, like I understand something that you don't and I'm going to do the right thing for me and my family. It's the opium of the people. It's the, you know, the cry of a heartless world. The sigh of the oppressed, though, isn't it? It doesn't... Yeah, it, exactly, it, the sigh of the oppressed. Yeah, but... Yeah, perhaps like the good sense in the nonsense of the conspiracy theory is um, is that, it, like, it is a search, it's a search for meaning. So so Jameson talks about this, he, when he looks at, like, the, the conspiracy films that, that come out in the 1970s, like The Parallax View, etc. Who's that, it, sorry? Who looks? Fre- Frederick Jameson. Right, OK. Really famous sort of uh, um, Marxist scholar. Mm-hmm. Um he was looking at, like, um, these films which were influenced by Watergate, you know, this revelation that the, the, the government was up to no good, etc., which led to this huge disillusionment in, in, in government. Um, you know, he was saying, look, you know, it, a little bit like it's the sigh of the oppressed. It's like, you know, uh, we don't condemn people for religion, you know. It is the opium of the masses, but also it, give, it does something for them, you know. It, it allows them some sort of grip on the world, probably allows them a lot, whole load of... Of, of collectivity and a sense of collective agency, do you know what I mean? Even though we have to overcome it eventually. Um, uh, and, uh, and, like, uh, conspiracy theories are a bit like, like you know, the, 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 the problem facing us is that the world as it operates is incredibly complex and we cannot get a good understanding of that just from our own personal experience. We've talked about this before on the show. Mm. Uh, and so, basically, the, the, when you're faced as an individual in the face of this, uh, of this huge complexity... Like what you get is paralysis through like this, this sense of anxiety and and like of being overwhelmed with the amount of complexity in the world. Do you know what I mean? So conspiracy theories are an attempt to to put uh, some sort of meaning or some sort of mapping. And in fact, Jameson sort of says, you know, they don't do a bad job. Conspiracy theories, or some of them anyway, the, the less whacked out ones. Do you know what I mean? Uh, of how of how the the world works. You know, it's actually more complicated than that. And in fact, if you're a Marxist, you believe something really much more far out, basically, than, than that there are just conspiracies of people who also believe that, that you know, that capitalists are not freely choosing agents who make their own way in the world. They're, they're 
deeply influenced by the social structures around them. You know, they're sort of, in some ways, animated by this sort of abstract force of capital, so they have to behave in a certain way. Um, you know, that is sort of like a fa fairly far out way of seeing the world. So, um, you know, that you know, we're talking about something, a, a system called capitalism, which you can only see by its effects. You know, that's a really hard thing. You can't see it, you can't touch it. You know, it's a hard, a difficult thing to get your head around. Um, and so, like, perhaps conspiracy theories are, are sort of like, you know, they're a poor, the poor person's attempt to sort of do that, right? Um, but they're also, perhaps, what we're seeing with QAnon is that they're also an attempt to impose, to try and get some sort of collective process of reasoning the world out. If you're thinking about conspiracy theory and conspiracy theory culture, in literature, in kind of, you know, in, in English language prose fiction, the writer who's always talked about as the kind of the writer of conspiracy theory culture is, is Thomas Pynchon. And Pynchon's first novel, Crying of Lot 49, is basically a sort of response to this whole sense of this sense that, in fact, the true story of the 60s isn't the kind of glorious dream of the, the flower of children or the revolutionaries of 68. It's the story that includes the assassination of Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy that would manifest itself in the early 70s as the COINTELPRO campaign to, to destroy the Black Panthers from, from within by the security services. Is this world, this new, this world of paranoia of the military-industrial complex not having been successfully checked? And that book comes out at the end of the 60s and it does coincide with the emergence of sort of the, the paranoid tone in rock. And there's a couple of kind of anthems of that moment that are, are always worth mentioning. There's obviously, there's Black Sabbath's sort of definitive, definitive sort of heavy metal track, really, sort of paranoid, which is just about the kind of subjective experience of, of paranoia. You could also mention the Stooges, on the um, I think especially on their second album, Funhouse, in 1970. There's tracks like TVI, this very sort of paranoid lyric, like she's got a TV eye on me. She got a TV eye on me. She got a TV eye. What they all share in common is this sense that the sort of the hopes of the 60s are, are dead or dying, and that what has successfully neutralised, you know, the promise of acid communism in this is not just some sort of... Is a, is a kind of set of political forces which include these very sinister kind of security, you know, security forces, these very sinister kind of agencies. And, you know, you can tie all that to that. I mean, you carry that stuff to its furthest conclusion. I mean, there always there was a, there was a conspiracy theory that the, the, the reason LS, that LSD was disseminated through the cult, the new left by um, by security agents who basically wanted people just to, to waste their time kind of tripping out instead of fomenting revolution. Like, I don't, I don't think that's true, but that was part of the milieu of the time. And that was part of the context in which people started to turn away from the sort of, you know, sun-kissed sound of the Grateful Dead to this kind of heavy, dark rock of people like the Stooges. I mean, thinking about it now, of course, you could pick almost any sort of jungle track from sort of 92 through to sort of 97. And a certain kind of deliberately cultivated sense of dark paranoia was, you know, was, was part of the aesthetic. And then that carries on into dubstep. And um, the, the idea that somehow by, by, by aestheticising your paranoia, by, by deliberately cultivating a very nuanced, affective experience of, of paranoia through smoking 
you know, too strong kind of hydroponic skunk and then listening and then listening to this very dark music that somehow you could you could negotiate the sort of horrors of of late capitalism you know by sort of aestheticizing its darkness and sort of getting off on it a bit and sort of inhabiting it that was basically that was central to the sort of affective culture of all those musics I mean, for me, that was always a real limitation of them, was that you could go, you know, you could go to, like, a dubstep rave and smoke weed and, like, feel, like, really dark and sort of alien, a bit alienated and weirdly empowered by your embrace of that. But there was... It didn't have any means by which either sort of affectively or intellectually to get outside it or get beyond it. And, you know, it's not, it's not really an accident that most people connected to that scene either had no politics or were sort of affiliated to people like Nick Land who ended up you know, being part of the sort of old right. But but that was a really... It's interesting to think about that, that really right through to the early, to the early 2000s, like the most formally innovative musics coming out of Britain all constituted themselves, their aesthetic, partly in terms of this this deliberate rejection, actually, of the sort of what they saw as the, bana- the banality of the forms of collective joy being promoted by kind of rave culture. And instead, you know, a kind of aestheticization of the very experience of urban paranoia. I watched a film the other day called Under the Silver Lake, which is which is a film that plays with all of this conspiratorial stuff. But like it's utterly littered with like little clues and ciphers which are not resolved in the film. And so basically, you know, as soon as you finish the film, you get on the internet and there's just huge reddits about people trying to put together these little Easter egg ciphers, etc., and like you know, some of them lead to a, a little a, 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 to a grid reference on a map, and people have gone off to search that grid reference, etc. You know, it's this. It shows. It's it's a really clever film because it shows this sort of real desire for world building. I think. Do you know what I mean? So people can build their a, a shared sort of world, and in some ways, QAnon is a little bit like world building, and that's why I sort of link. I I I, um, I recognize it from that sort of some of the sort of subcultural worlds that I've been in, because those subcultural worlds are sort of world-building as well. Do you know what I mean? But you can build different types of worlds. You can build worlds which are paranoid and enclosed, or you can build worlds which are open, basically, and inclusive. Do you know what I mean? Which is which is interesting because, you know, one of the things that we talk about on the show as well is it, I mean, and that, that was definitely, you know, a strong, a strong part of Plan C's politics, is this idea of needing to invent the future. Of of having to 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 yeah to basically world build because if you can't imagine it then you can't have it or we can't we can't we can never get to something that we can't imagine to be true or we'll, we're then stuck in this kind of capitalist bubble so it's interesting how that inter inter interacts with what you're just saying. I mean, I would also I would come back to this stuff around science, sort of open science, for example. I mean, I think and also media. I mean. You know, also, it's a friend of the show, Dan Hind, uh, wrote this great book a few years ago now, which I'm always citing. I now I can't even remember the title of it, but it's about, you know, Dan Dan does a um, podcast with Tom Mills, the, um, what's the, the Media Democracy podcast, and, yeah, he's a Media Democracy sort of campaigner, and, and his argument was, look, what we need as a sort of left demand and a left policy is 
you know, to have a media system within which the public can kind of collectively deliberate on on actually on things like investigative journalism, like what stories do we want investigated, you know, and and you would have sort of professional journalists working for organisations like the BBC would do it, and what what kind of content do we want? You know, when Mark and I wrote that, Mark Fisher and I wrote that pamphlet, Reclaim Modernity, a few years ago, we were in partly influenced by that, and I'm always citing that, and it's sort of a similar, and, and it also that's an idea that relates to, I mean, obviously that partly speaks to just what we're talking about, which is how do you have public media that people can actually trust? Like, how do you have public media? Because everything we've been talking about is related to the sense of fake news being everywhere. It's related to the sense that there are no longer any media institutions you can trust. So you might as well believe some some wacko on YouTube because you know that even the BBC are probably lying to you, like in the service of their, their own kind of class interests. So that has to be resolved. So that's a demand. But I think that also, uh, that, and it is historically, it has been a kind of left demand at moments of very high kind of political consciousness for, you know, for public and democratic science, for like, you know, science to be conducted in a way which is free from the imposition of, you know, capitalist interests, but instead is clearly done in a way which every anyone can get access to, anybody can verify, and, and is clearly being done in, in the public interest. And I think that has to be part of our our demands as as the left and i think the idea that the fact that that is something that can happen just has to be part of our discourse because today i mean whole generations have grown up not even having any sense that that's possible hi folks this is matt part of the team who put the show together with a quick note to say that we at ACFM are taking a short hiatus for the next few months, but we'll be back in late autumn to elevate your consciousness once again. If you can't wait that long for your next trip, various members of the extended ACFM crew are taking part in the World Transformed Festival this September. Head to theworldtransformed.org to register. Stay alert, expand your mind, and we'll see you soon. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.